the latest headlines. He's so much better as that number two option. The insightful interviews. Michael Scotto, basketball insiders. I don't think there's an Italian sit-down between LeBron and Kyrie. The hottest takes. Teams that do run the system that Colin thrives in have starting quarterbacks. Can all be found on Press, Press Row. Row. Broadcasting as part of the Brew Sports Network. Here's your host. You can only envy being that good ever in your life. Christian Heimel. So what'd you think? Were you entertained? Was it what you wanted? Were you surprised at all of what happened on Saturday night in Las Vegas? Did you even watch it? And don't lie to me. I know you did because the numbers are there. Everybody watched this fight or had some sort of way to know what was going on with McGregor Mayweather The biggest question is, were you satisfied? And if you weren't, clearly you had a lot of money to lose on this fight. Welcome on Press Row. I'm Christian Heimel. So happy to have you guys here with us. Again, uh, please subscribe, rate, review, share us with your friends. Tell them all about us here on iTunes. Uh, It was one heck of a fight, I'll be honest. Uh, It went not 100% the way I expected. I did expect Floyd Mayweather to win. Um, I didn't expect him to win in that fashion, though. I thought Connor represented himself great. He legitimately went 10 rounds with one of the best boxers of all time uh, and did so taking the first few rounds. I thought he took four, the four first rounds, and I think he snuck in the ninth, honestly. I thought heading into the 10th, Connor was ahead on points, but it was clearly going Floyd's way. I think the most surprising part about the whole fight was that Floyd did what he said he was going to do. He said he was going to be the aggressor, and he went out there, and he was aggressive. He went after Conor McGregor, and I think for the first time, for a lot of people who don't watch boxing or haven't watched boxing, the younger generation, the folks who are so in love with MMA, they saw Floyd Mayweather for the first time, and that was the best Floyd you're going to see. Now, here's the caveat to that. It was against a novice boxer, a guy who was making his professional debut, who had never boxed before at that level, And uh, it it was a little disappointing to Floyd. But uh, at the same time, he actually went out there and he he won it. He straight up won it. The stoppage was correct. Um, A lot of folks were upset about the stoppage. But those folks are people who watch the MMA and are used to seeing fights go a little bit longer before they get stopped. But in boxing, that's the right way to go. Um, Again, I love the fight. I was thoroughly entertained by it. I did not expect Connor to be able to go a full 10 rounds. I also did not expect, uh, you know, Floyd to really go in and knock him out. And he did, you know, he went and he was the aggressor and he did everything he could to win that fight. It was really impressive. And I, I enjoyed it. You know, the question now, as we move forward, there, there are a couple of questions and we've got a great guest list today. The first one is going to be John Morgan of MMA junkie who was in Vegas. He watched the fight. He's going to join us here in a couple of minutes to talk about all this, but I have three questions now after this fight. You know, number one, will we ever see another super fight between mixed martial artists and a boxer? I don't think so. I think this kind of put that to bed. Um, You're never going to have an MMA guy with a star power and the marketability of a Conor McGregor. Um, And I don't know if there's a boxer that people want to see. There's a great fight coming up here in a few weeks of Canelo Alvarez and Triple G. That is going to be a great boxing match. But I still think boxing... If it's not dead, it's on life support, and it's tough to market that to a younger generation with the MMA and with how popular that sport has been uh, over the last couple of years. So I don't know uh, what's going to happen. I don't see, however, you're not going to see a guy like, you know, Jose Aldo jumping in or 
uh, you know, anybody else jumping into the squared circle and trying to box somebody. It's not going to happen. I think mainly because you're not going to have a marketable guy like you had Conor McGregor. You're just not. So uh, I don't expect to see that anymore. My second question is, uh, you know, what does this do for Conor McGregor? What's next? Um, will he go back to the UFC? I think that's a yes. Uh, will he go back to boxing? I doubt it just because I don't know where the money is. The money for him now is going to be in the UFC where it always has been. Um, if he decides to go back, you've got Nate Diaz there. Uh, you had the Diaz trilogy, which I think every MMA fan wants. You've got Conor potentially being able to go back and forth between two different weight classes to, to win belts. Um, you, you got Khabib uh, Nurmagomedov there that could fight him. Um, there's an interesting fight coming up here in a little bit, Kevin Lee and Tony Ferguson, which the winner of that, who knows, could could be fun to see. Um, I think Jose Aldo wants another shot at McGregor. If you looked at him on Twitter after the fight, uh, he looked like he was mocking Connor, and it's kind of hard to mock a guy when you get knocked out in 13 seconds, the fastest KO in that division to lose your belt in Brazil, by the way, your home country. So I, I think Aldo would love another shot at him. There are a number of fights there for Connor. But now the biggest problem with that is Connor holds all the weight in the bargaining. Dana White has no bargaining chip over Connor because he knows now just how much more marketable Connor is uh, in this sport. And, and that's the biggest thing. And then my third and, and final question, and, and you know, you, this will be up for debate forever because these debates always are. Where do you rank Floyd Mayweather as a boxer now? He's 50-0. He says he's going to stay retired this time. Never lost. 12-time world champ at five different weight classes. Where do you rank him all time? I mean, I would like to say that he's one of the best ever simply because he's, he's easily the best of this generation. Of the last 20 years, he is the best fighter. That is, there's no question about that. But he got to that point by being very defensive. And when you look at the way boxing has been, you look at knockout artists, guys like Rocky Marciano, guys like Mike Tyson, Muhammad Ali, where do you rank them in there? I would probably put him in the top 10. He may crack the top five there, but who knows? Who knows where you rank uh, rank Floyd Mayweather all time when it comes to boxing? We'll see what happens. What really matters, though, is, again, I think boxing, this was boxing's last hurrah. It's going to go back into relative obscurity. You're going to have the diehard fans who will still watch boxing, but I don't think you're going to see any MMA person really go and covet boxing now to the way they covet MMA. It's just not going to happen. You're on Press Row. I'm Christian Heimel. It was a fight that set records for pay-per-view, a fight that set records for money earned for the fighters, and uh, probably set the record for quickest shutdown of the internet, be with all the streaming issues that were had on Saturday night. Mayweather and McGregor, and one of the guys who was there covering it all for MMA Junkie was John Morgan. He joins us now. And John, what were your uh, thoughts on the fight and how did you see it go? Were you impressed at all uh, by Connor and Floyd in that contest on Saturday night? To be honest, I, I was entertained, man. I had a good time at the fight. You know, uh, I will say that I think as fight week was unfolding, uh, a little bit of fatigue was setting in and covering this. I mean, uh, this was all anybody wanted to talk about and all anybody wanted to click on. So it seemed like we were just, you know, exhausting every single angle we could. And, uh, you know, by the, by the end of the media circuit, it was like, come on, let's just get to the fight. But uh, I thought it was entertaining. You know, to be honest with you, I, I thought Connor represented himself well, a lot better than I think a lot of people expected for him. Uh, and, and I thought Floyd was, was masterful as well and, and certainly did what he said he was going to do, which was put on an exciting fight. And I think a lot of people weren't, you know, really sure if that was going to be the case. Floyd is masterful at, at what he does with his defensive style. But, 
you know, it's not always incredibly exciting to watch. And he said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be exciting here. I'm going to go forward. And, and he did that. So, you know, overall, I, I, just, I thought it was a good fight. I thought it lived up to the hype, and, uh, and it was entertaining. I wondered this throughout the process as we got closer to the fight of – of Floyd saying he was going to be uh, aggressive and put on an exciting fight given his career. But what were you more surprised by on Saturday? Connor legitimately going 10 rounds with Floyd Mayweather or Floyd's desire and Floyd's willingness to go and be the aggressor in the fight? Good question. I mean, I, I think you probably have to lean towards Floyd uh, just because it was such a masterful performance. I mean, yes, he lost a couple of rounds early, but I think we all knew that would probably be the case while he, while he studied what was coming at him. You know I mean? The thing that was exciting to me about this going in was was realizing that you know how few sporting events do you sit down and really have absolutely no idea what you're about to see, and we had no idea what Conor McGregor was going to look like as a boxer, and Floyd didn't either. You know, and he had to be the, the he had to be the guy in there dodging the punches. So I think it took him a little while to figure out the timing, the, the range, and all those things. But uh, you know, he made the adjustments, and and uh, and then obviously got to finish late in the fight. Uh, you know, to me, I wish I wish I wish the fight would have gone a little bit longer, but I, I don't find the stoppage all that controversial. I thought it was pretty justified, and we kind of knew what was going to happen at that point in time. But uh, but listen, that's not to take away from Connor either. I mean, I thought Connor again. I mean, a, a novice boxer. I mean, yes, he does have some experience training, but an O and O fighter went in there and, and went ten rounds with one of the best to ever do it, and 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 took a couple rounds off him and, and made it exciting. So you know, overall, I thought I thought really both guys kind of came away winners. He's John Morgan of MMA Junkie. Watching uh, the post-fight press conference, it was interesting to hear Connor talk about how he felt fatigue really played a role in the fight, especially saying he wished he could have gotten to the end of the 10th inning, even referencing the DS2 fight where he felt fatigue in that third round before being able to come out uh, later on in that fight. What does this fight do, the lessons he's learned, what does this fight do for Connor's career as a fighter, whether it be in the octagon or maybe even back in the in the ring? Because he has said he didn't rule out a return to boxing. I mean, listen, had he won here, I think it's a little bit more complicated. You know, the fact that he lost, you could probably still put together the Polymalinazzi fight. I mean, there's certainly a lot of heat there. And, you know, as a website operator, I can tell you, uh, I, I was kind of tired of the Polymalinazzi storyline, but every time we published something, people clicked on it. So there's obvious fan interest there. So you could probably come back at some time and put together a Polymalinazzi fight in, in a boxing ring. But, uh, you know, I, I think it's good if you're an MMA fan because I don't think this hurts Conor McGregor's uh, star power or his believability. Now, I, don't, I can't see anybody saying – now that they're less interested to see Conor McGregor fight next time in the UFC. So, you know, it's just helping to grow as a superstar. And uh, the fact that he lost means it's, it's probably more likely to go back to MMA right now. You know, had, had he won, I think there'd be a lot more boxing options on the table, a lot of boxers calling him out, trying to defend the sport, so to speak, and, and casting on those big paydays. But now I think it means that, that we definitely get Conor back in the UFC uh, sooner rather than later, although you got to believe he's always going to keep this, this boxing opportunity in his back pocket as kind of a negotiating tactic. What did you make of some of uh, Connor's former MMA opponents, uh, their reaction to the fight on Twitter? Because truthfully, I was astounded by Jose Aldo's tweet uh, where he essentially was kind of mocking Connor. Yeah, I, I, I thought that was a little bit of sour grapes right there. I was a little shocked by that one as well. I mean, I, I guess, you know, the, the type of trash talk that Connor does and, and the, type, the way he puts people down, you know, I could see that that it brings some frustration that they hang on to and that, that they want to get back. I mean, listen, he, he got inside Jose Aldo's head. There's no question about that. So, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of hostility there. I mean, Jose is never going to be a fan of Conor McGregor. So, I, I, you know, I guess it's understandable frustration. But, you know, I, I thought as a whole the MMA community had the right reaction, which, you know, seemed to be a lot of a positive vibes and saying, you know, good on you, Conor. You know, you went in there and, and you did yourself well. You represented the sport well. And, 
and how you got you know you made yourself rich along the way. So uh, you know, I guess not to be surprised by some of those that you consider his enemies. Well, the biggest storyline now for Connor, I guess, is is what's next for him. I mean, he's you mentioned he's probably going back to the UFC, and I think a lot of fans would prefer that. But what's next for him? He even referenced the Diaz trilogy. I know there are other fights possible for Connor, but what do you see as next for him from a professional standpoint? I think it's the Diaz trilogy. I think that's the biggest fight available right now. I mean, Connor is a star, and he's going to command a star pay as well. I mean, you, you got to think that he's going to go in and negotiate some some more money with the UFC, and, and they're open to it. I mean, Dana said, "Listen, this guy deserves." every sense that he, that he commands, you know, and, and that he demands. He, he, he's earned it, so he deserves it. So, um, you know, but they're going to be looking for the biggest money opportunity available. And, you know, I, I love the uh, UFC 216 fight with Tony Ferguson and Kevin Lee. I think that's a fantastic interim title fight. I'm, I'm looking forward to that fight. But, I mean, the, the real options you look at are the winner of that fight. Uh, you know, you still got Habib Nurmagomedov out there who's got some claim, you know, just with his undefeated record. But he's been so inactive. Um, I, I don't think he has much of a claim right now. And I think they probably would like to save that fight for Russia as well. You know, I mean, they, they want to get to Russia at some point. Um, and if they can have Habib and, and Conor in Russia, that'd be a heck of a way to make an introduction into the market. But you look at the biggest money opportunity, what's going to get the most fan attention? What's going to get the most headlines and media attention? It's the Nate Diaz trilogy. There's no question about it. So, uh, you know, I, I just think that right now that that's the fight that makes the most financial sense for the UFC and for Conor McGregor, even if it doesn't necessarily make sense in the division. He's John Morgan of MMA Junkie joining us here on Press Row. And I think one of the questions a lot of people had, myself included, going into the fight was, should Conor win? Does this open Pandora's box of MMA guys going in to the squared circle and fighting a couple of boxers? Dana White addressed it post-fight. He said he had no desire to do this with any more of his guys. Did this kind of quell the idea of an MMA guy stepping into boxing? I, I think so, at least for now. I mean, this was such a special, unique situation. I mean, I remember when they first started talking about this uh, last year. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't think either Connor or Floyd thought it could really happen. I think they just saw it as an opportunity to kind of keep themselves in the headlines, you know, keep keep news uh, talking about them, and that just helps with your popularity and your marketability. Um, and then along the way, it just it became the public interest became so high that what, what was fantasy had to become reality because there was too much money on the line. They didn't want to walk away from it. And so they made it happen. And, and, and you know, Dana White has never been one to co-promote. And, you know, obviously they had to go through special situations to make this happen. But this was just such a special situation. See other opportunities right now that would make sense. I mean, people throw things out there like Steve Benioff going against Anthony Joshua. Or, and obviously you've got, uh, what, Jimmy Manuel talking about David Hay. I mean, there are opportunities out there. And maybe they would work. But, I mean, nothing that's really going to move the needle. Um, that's going to have the UFC kind of stop down their whole business and, and, and make that stuff happen. So I don't see it on the immediate horizon. I do think that, you know, Dana White sporting those Zufa boxing T-shirts every now and then wasn't exactly uh, an I think they're at least kicking the tires on that, and, and maybe they could get in the promotion business. I mean, it seemed like uh, Dana and Leonard Ellaby from Mayweather Promotions had a, a really fantastic working relationship, and, and there's nothing but good things to say about each other. So maybe they could get together in the future and, and, and do some, some, some other events. And at that point, you know, when it's still a, a benefited event, then, yeah, maybe, maybe something happens. But um, I think for the immediate future, yeah, the answer is no. I want to transition a little bit and talk about some other headlines in the UFC uh, that have maybe been overshadowed by this fight. The biggest one and probably the most disappointing one is obviously the failed drug test uh, from John Jones after winning the belt back from Daniel Cormier. What's the latest update there? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of quiet right now. They've got to go through the, the litigation process, essentially. I mean, they're, they're going to go, they're, they're going to have everything investigated, and USADA is going to do their deal. And in the camp right now, 
uh, John Jones's camp is adamantly denying that they willfully took any any substance uh, that, that would be considered a PED. So I mean, there is a possibility that maybe he did get a hold of a pain supplement. I'm I'm not uh, you know a PED expert by any stretch of the imagination, but if you read about this substance that he took, it's a very uh, you know cheap kind of unsophisticated substance. Not the type of thing that you would expect a multi-million dollar you know elite level athlete to to be trying to cheat with. You know. Uh, so it's a very real possibility that maybe he did get some painted supplements, you know. Uh, and if that's the case, it will certainly lessen his punishment. Now, that said, here's the unfortunate part is that, you know, he's just coming off a of suspension. So, you know, I think USADA's going to take that into account. And, and unfortunately, I think the court of public opinion is going to really take that into account. You know, it's kind of one of those, well, we gave you the benefit of that once, but, you know, now we're supposed to give you the benefit of the doubt again. And, and, uh, I think it's a damn shame because, you know, John Jones, by all accounts, is, is one of the most, you know, freakishly good, remarkable athletes that, that this sport has ever seen. And I don't, I don't think he needs to cheat, to be honest with you. And, 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 I'm not, and I'm not ready to say that he did knowingly cheat, but it's, it's tough. So it's a, it's a tricky situation right now. And, and the maximum penalty is four years for a second offense. Uh, four years, I think, would potentially end his career. I mean, he's only 30 uh, now. So he'd only be 34 if he did have to serve that suspension. But, you know, how do you train at a high level for four years and keep yourself sharp and keep yourself in tip-top condition if you're not making money doing it along the way because you can't fight? You know, how, how do you keep yourself sharp? Uh, so, I mean, it could conceivably end his career if he gets that four years. I tend to think maybe he'll get a lesser sentence, but even a lesser sentence might end up being two years, which would just be a, a, an absolute shame. Uh, it, it just sucks to see John Jones uh, continually dealing with situations like this when, when he is so incredible to watch fight. I mean, you can make the argument now that he's, he's the greatest of all time. And, you know, had he not had these issues along the way, I think it would be inarguable. With John Jones now having these issues and with Connor, who knows when he's going to get back into the octagon, I feel like the UFC is suffering a little bit of a marketing problem. Who is their big guy for fights now? Is, is it a, a guy in Demetrius Johnson going for a record for title defenses? Or is it a guy who hasn't fought in four years and when he makes his return at UFC 217 is going to get a title shot in GSP? Man, yeah, they're in a bad spot right now. There's no question about it. I think GSP coming back is certainly the bigger one. All, all respect to Demetrius Johnson. Uh, I love watching Demetrius Johnson fight, man. I, I think he is incredible. And I think it's the, the record that he's going for is amazing. But I just don't see that fight selling. And I know that, that Demetrius thinks it will based on the record. But just early indications that, you know, we've seen it. We, we've seen it all on Demetrius Johnson's career. The flyweights don't sell. And I, and I don't get it. I really don't get it. You know, I, I, I think – you know, it boils down to people, you know, looking at a flyway and thinking, well, that guy, I mean, I could beat that guy. That's not impressive. It's like, no, they, that guy would kill you. You know what I mean? But uh, still, it, it, it just don't seem to resonate with fans. And it's a damn shame because uh, Demetrius Johnson's getting in the entire flyway division. I mean, you're talking about guys that don't gas out, that are so dynamic in how they fight. You know, they transition from striking to wrestling to jiu-jitsu, you know, incredibly quickly. You know, and everything that this speed of the fights is just so quick. So I think it's a damn shame. But no, George St. Pierre coming back is certainly the, the, the bigger storyline right now. Um, I, I don't exactly love it, to be honest with you. I think, um, it, I guess it worked out okay that, uh, you know, Robert Whitaker is kind of hurt right now, so he needs some time off anyway. So I, I guess it worked out okay. Um, but it's, it's a shame that, you know, the middleweight division, which right now might be more exciting than ever, is kind of being taken hostage by George St. Pierre coming back. You know, I would have. I would have loved to see George fight at 170. I mean, that's intriguing to me is to come back, you know, the greatest welterweight of all time and try to regain that position after all this time away. So uh, we'll see. But, yeah, it's definitely going to be a big fight. And 
listen, you, you give Michael Bisping a couple weeks uh, of, of interviews and microphone time, all of a sudden you start getting yourself a fight you can't wait to watch. I'm kind of in your camp there, and we're speaking with John Morgan of MMA Junkie. I, I wasn't really a fan of, of GSP getting this title shot, especially at middleweight, uh, where he hasn't fought before four years after he you know had his last fight. But it felt almost like the UFC just threw that out there on fight night as being official to try to maybe soften the blow that that's how he's going to make his return. Yeah, it's a little bit bizarre. It just kind of floated. I, mean, I guess it had just been bandied about for so long. People kind of assumed it was done, but it was kind of weird that they just, you know, made a little announcement during the middle of something, you know, bizarre time to make it official. But, you know, I think most people knew it was happening. But you're right. Uh, the, the middleweight aspect of it is a little bit a little bit surprising to me. Well, we touched on it a little bit, but, uh, I mean, what's the biggest storyline now for the UFC? I mean, with Demetrius, GSP, Bisbing, you mentioned Lee and Ferguson, which is a fight that I'm so excited for. But what's the biggest draw now for uh, in these next coming pay-per-views for Dana White and the UFC? Trying to get the, something going. I mean, in the next couple of weeks, it's just going to pale in comparison. I mean, the whole summer has been about building this Conor McGregor fight. So, you know, I think they'd probably like to, to get him back before the end of the year if they can. You know, he said he wants to fight on December 30th in Vegas. That would be fantastic for the UFC. That would be a great way for them to finish up the year. Um, certainly, you know, the November card in Madison Square Garden is, is going to be strong as well. But, you know, I, to be honest, I, I, just, I think we're going to have a little bit of a hangover for a couple of weeks, uh, you know, everybody's been kind of Conor McGregor and Floyd Mayweather out. I mean, the, the UFC is in Rotterdam this weekend uh, with Volkov versus Struve and, and, and really, you know, I don't, I don't know that we're going to see much buzz about that this week. And, and listen, that UFC 215 card, uh, it, it lost a, a, a big fight. You know, Francis Ngannou Jr. Dos Santos was going to be on that card. And I think a lot of people were looking forward to that. Even with two title fights on the card, I think a lot of people really looking forward to that fight. Um, so we'll see how UFC 215 does, but. Honestly, I think I think we're gonna have a couple weeks of hangover, and, and uh, the UFC is gonna struggle for a couple weeks to kind of generate the same kind of attention. That's that's gonna be the big deal. You know, can they finish on a high note this year? John Morgan of MMA Junkie was in Vegas for the McGregor Mayweather fight. Don't let the hangover affect you too long, my man. We need guys like you there on the ground pumping up this sport. Thanks a lot. Much respect. I appreciate it. It's John Morgan of MMA Junkie, and you know he and I touched on it a lot here. UFC's got an issue now. They, they don't have that big marketable guy until Connor comes back. I mean, George St. Pierre, I, I don't like him returning at, at middleweight. If he wanted to come back at welterweight where he held the title, never actually lost the title, fine, come back there. But four years later, you're going to go to middleweight and you automatically get a title shot against Michael Bisbing? I, I, don't, I don't like that. I don't. Uh, I mean, it's, it's just something that bothers me. I think GSP should have come back. Uh, at welterweight um, and that this is the issue with the UFC now is who is their marketable guy because not a lot of people want to see Bisbing fight because he doesn't fight that much anymore John Jones now with a potential four-year suspension maybe a two-year suspension as John Morgan mentioned his career could probably be over after this suspension so they there's a marketability issue now with the UFC I love watching the flyweights uh, Demetrius Johnson I think is one of my favorite guys ever to watch he's so much fun but they just don't sell. They don't. And I understand he's going for a record for most consecutive title title defenses, but the numbers aren't going to be there without a guy like Conor McGregor. The Diaz trilogy is going to go nuts in the UFC. But who is the big marketable guy now? It's, it's a problem. I don't know who it's going to be. We'll see what happens. I think the biggest name is, is George St. Pierre. And when he returns on November 4th to fight Bisbing at middleweight, That'll be your, your next big spike in terms of 
views and in terms of uh, pay-per-view purchases for the UFC. But for now, it's just waiting for Conor to return because he is the undisputed king of the UFC now. It's, it's his world, and we just wait for him to make a decision on it. It's that simple. It was a fun fight. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Again, we will never see anything like this again, so don't expect that. But just understand that what you saw was a once-in-a-lifetime thing. And for what it's worth from me, I think it was the best possible thing you guys could have seen. It was awesome. It was a win-win no matter what. You're on Press Row. I'm Christian Heimel. Thank you guys so much for being with us. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Share us with your friends on iTunes. Let everybody know. And, of course, you can always be a part of the show by tweeting us your questions. You can find me on Twitter, at Chris Heimel. Really appreciate you guys being a part of this. A lot of other stuff to get to here in the world of sports. One of the bigger ones was the trade last week of Kyrie Irving to the Celtics for Isaiah Thomas, Jay Crowder, Ante Zizic, and a first-round pick, the 2018 first-round pick that Boston acquired from the Brooklyn Nets. And then, over the weekend, you start to hear that things are going away a little bit, that this trade, the Cavaliers are going to want more because after Isaiah Thomas goes through a physical, they didn't like what they saw from the hip. And in these sort of trade negotiations, you expect everybody to be fully forthcoming with injuries and anything like that. And I guess the Cavaliers, for whatever reason, didn't feel as comfortable after the trade and after the physical as they did during it. So they go after and they try to get more pieces from the Boston Celtics and rumors were at first they wanted Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown. And you knew the Celtics weren't going to give those guys up because by getting rid of uh, Avery Bradley and getting rid of a couple of others, it was pretty obvious that those two were going to be the cornerstone for the future along with Gordon Hayward in Boston. And now it turns out that it'll probably be a a second round pick in 2020, which really kind of makes the Cavaliers look bad that you're, you're holding out and you're really dragging Isaiah Thomas through the mud about his injury and that he's not going to be as good of a player just to get a second round pick in three years. It doesn't look good. But at the same time, in my mind, I just keep thinking, boy, this was LeBron trying to tell the Cavaliers that this trade wasn't enough to keep him around. Because that's all Cleveland cares about. Cleveland cares about one of two things, winning a title next year with LeBron or keeping him past next year, which is why the 2018 pick from the Brooklyn Nets was so huge, as Michael Scotto of Basketball Insiders told us last week. So uh, a lot of this, to me, had LeBron's fingerprints all over it. It does look like it's a second-round pick now in 2020 that is going to be added to this, which makes the Cavaliers look terrible. The Celtics get a very talented point guard, and a guy who knows a lot about how it's going up in Boston is Tom Westerholm. He's a Celtics writer for MassLive.com. Tom joins us here on press row. Tom, what's the latest? Where do we all stand here with this trade? Well, I think everything that happened last night really kind of shed some clarity on the situation. Um, it sounds like the Cavaliers at this point are willing to accept a less lucrative sort of um, compensation um, in exchange for the news that uh, Isaiah Thomas's hip is a little bit worse than they were expecting. Um, it doesn't sound like they're going to be demanding um, Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown, which they wouldn't have gotten anyway. Um, it sounds a lot more like they're looking at a late first-round pick, which the Celtics have plenty of, or a second-round pick, which the Celtics also have plenty of. So, 
you know, that's, I think that's going to be a lot more palatable for the Celtics, you know, for, for both teams. I think this kind of, uh, especially for the Celtics, I think this comes across as a little bit of a win. I mean, I do think that this trade is probably going to go through, um, you know, there's, there's other offers out there that, that have been kind of floating around. Um, it does sound like Milwaukee is sort of, uh, you know, lurking on the edges in case this thing goes south for both teams. I mean, I wouldn't say that it's official official yet, but it just makes too much sense. Uh, you know, for the Celtics at this point and for the Cavaliers to to, to kind of make make sure this thing goes through. Let me ask you this, because I feel like it's a question that a lot of people are, are talking about is which team kind of looks worse in, in this whole instance? Is it the Cavaliers for maybe trying to pilfer another quality asset out of the Celtics? Or is it the Celtics for maybe being perceived as not being as forthcoming with Isaiah Thomas's injury? Well, you know, I think it's got to be the Cavaliers. Um, you know, I think the Celtics were fairly forthcoming, and I think the Cavaliers had to have an idea that Thomas's hip was hurt because, you know, he, he sat out the uh, the end of the Eastern Conference Finals, you know, against them, against the Cavaliers. So, you know, I think I think the Cavaliers knew what the deal was. Um, it does kind of sound like the reporting that's been going on does kind of sound like, you know, they weren't very surprised by what happened here, um, by what Thomas's hip looked like, and. You know, that's not a great look for them because they're clearly trying to squeeze out a little more compensation here. Um, you know, they, they pretty clearly opened things back up, um, you know, around the league, you know, as uh, Zach Lowe reported today that, that uh, you know, there were, was kind of that opportunity for other teams to swoop in and say, well, you know, if you're not interested in the Celtics offer, here's what we can give. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily sound like that's going to come to fruition, but I do think that that, you know, that, that does not look particularly good for Cleveland. And, and I think that kind of, it's not going to resonate well with the Celtics fan base. Let's put it that way. Maybe it's just me in a cynical sense, but part of me feels as though this had LeBron James written all over it and him going to Dan Gilbert saying, hey, what you got in this trade isn't enough to keep me here after next year. Has that been discussed anywhere else in this whole trade negotiations, or is that just me? Oh, certainly. I mean, you know, the Cavaliers are very, very focused on that, and I think, and I think that is kind of what – they were hoping they were going to do with this trade was sort of straddle the line between the present and the future. You know, Isaiah is such a talented player when he's healthy. And, you know, Jay Crowder is one of the better role players in the league on one of the best contracts in the league. So they, they did really position themselves well to compete now. And then also that 2018 Brooklyn pick, the, uh, you know, the, the, the 2018 draft is stacked. So that's, um, you know, that that's a, you know, in its original form, that trade was really good on both, you know, on both fronts for the Cavaliers. Um, so, I, you know, I do think that once they learned that Thomas's hip wasn't what they were hoping it was going to be, LeBron might have come to them. But at the end of the day, the Cavaliers really want that 2018 Nets pick. And, you know, even, whether they use it or whether they flip it for an, another player that maybe LeBron would want to play with, you know, that's still up in the air. But, but they're not going to get a better um, – you know, they're not going to get a better asset than that pick, you know, whether that's from Milwaukee, whether that's from Phoenix. That pick is super, super valuable both as a trade asset and – and, you know, as something that they could potentially use down the line. So certainly I think LeBron got involved, but, you know, I, I don't know that the Cavaliers are going to necessarily bend, um, you know, especially when they're talking about an asset sort of of that magnitude. He's Tom Westerholm, Celtics writer for MassLive.com. What's been the uh, the general feelings in Boston surrounding this trade, getting Kyrie, Isaiah Thomas leaving? I mean, obviously you have some people who are idiots burning Thomas's jersey, but what's been the overall sentiment about this trade here in Boston? I mean, uh, you know, when you talk about people burning their jerseys, I mean, it looked like it was just a couple of people who were looking for retweets, um, and they got them. So that's, you know, that wasn't uh, wasn't ideal. Um, the, the feeling around Boston is, is, 
You know, I think people are excited about Kyrie. You know, he's obviously a transcendent offensive talent. There, people just don't do the things, you know, around the basket, you know, with his handle. So, I mean, guys like that just don't really exist. But people loved Isaiah Thomas, and a lot of people really liked Jake Crowder as well. So, you know, Thomas really ascended to, you know, Boston superstar status pretty quickly. You know, a couple of people on Twitter last night were telling me that this kind of felt like when Paul Pierce got traded, and that's really, really high praise, you know, for, for a Celtics sports figure. I mean, Paul Pierce is one of the most beloved Celtics, you know, of, of the modern era. So, you know, Thomas got pretty close to that point if he didn't get totally to that point. So, th- so this trade was, you know, I, I think it was, the, the feeling was really sad. You know, there were, there were a lot of people who were really bummed, but you know, you, you can, when, when, uh, you know, when fans take a step back, I think they'll be able to see pretty well what Danny Ainge was trying to do, um, you know, how this fits their timeline a little bit better. And, and I think that's going to be kind of uh kind of the way people comfort themselves about this. Speaking with Tom Westerholm of MassLive.com about this Celtics-Cavaliers trade, looks as though the Cavaliers are going to be fine with just a, a second-round pick here, But and you mentioned the Celtics not giving up uh, Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown. How important was it to Danny Ainge to keep those two players, especially after already letting go of Avery Bradley? Yeah, I mean, it was very important. Uh, you know, especially... I mean, look, the Celtics are going to rely on those guys this year. They're not that deep anymore. You know, they traded Jay Crowder, and that opened up minutes for these guys. And I think that was part of his reasoning was, you know, as much as he liked Crowder, he wants these guys to start getting real minutes. Um, but, you know, Tatum is going to be able to play, you know, multiple positions, and, and Jalen Brown might start. You know, he could end up slotting, slotting in at the two, which he played really well last season. He's, he's very versatile. He can – you know, he can attack off the dribble, and defensively he can guard a whole bunch of different positions. So, I, you know, it was, it was crucial. They, they couldn't give those up. And I think, honestly, if, if the Cavaliers had drawn some kind of line in the sand and it said, hey, you know, you don't get Kyrie if we don't get um, Tatum or Brown, I think this deal would have fallen through. Um, that just the Celtics weren't going to give that up. And, the, uh, you know, the implications of giving those guys up would have been way too damaging. So, you know, they're crucial. It's going to be uh, – they're going to have big roles this year. The way it's being talked about right now with the names at least thrown out there, the Celtics starting five, if they don't make any more moves, it, it could realistically be Kyrie, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum at the three, Gordon Hayward, a really small four, and then uh, Al Horford at the five. Is that lineup, is this team the way it's built right now enough to leapfrog Cleveland in the Eastern Conference? Well, I think they'll be pretty close. I think the starting lineup would look a little bit more like um, Kyrie, um, Jalen Brown, Gordon Hayward, and then probably like a Marcus Morris type. Um, the Celtics are also working out Thomas Robinson. I don't think he would start, but you know, the the other thing they could do is they um, they did pick up Aaron Baines in free agency, so they could theoretically start uh, Al Horford at the four and then put Baines at the five, um, which would really kind of shore up their rebounding. Um, but uh, you know, I think they're going to be really good. This is this is a very this is this is a really stacked crew. Um, you know, I, I, the Cavaliers will be especially hurt, you know, if, if Thomas can't play. And obviously you don't hope for that, you know, as, you know, I would assume Celtics fans don't. And anybody who watched Thomas and covered him last year certainly doesn't either. Um, but, you know, that, that would be damaging for the Cavaliers. And, you know, the Celtics have, have put themselves in a position where they have, you know, some, some real star talent and a lot of really interesting lineups they could go to. So I do think it would be a conversation. I'm, I'm not sure who would come out of the um, next year, obviously, you would favor the Cavs just because they still have the best player in the world, but it's a lot closer. I don't think anybody's expecting Danny Ainge to be fully done making moves here with this Celtics team in the offseason or even in season. Have there been any rumors or any rumblings of any other potential moves for Trader Danny here uh, as we get a little bit closer to training camp? 
I think they are probably pretty close to being done, you know, especially if they do like what they saw from Thomas Robinson, who was working out at their uh, facility the other day. You know, he's a, he's a rebounder, and the Celtics really desperately needed rebounding this offseason. Um, I, I think they're probably pretty close to being done. You know, you can look down the line and sort of see, you know, stars who might end up being available that, you know, maybe he would try to move, um, you know, for eventually. But, you know, unless somebody blows them away with an offer this year, um, it's going to be really tough. They're they're pretty – they're capped out, so they'll have to match salaries in any deals. Um, and, you know, the, the assets that they have are probably too valuable to use on role players. So, you know, it's – It'll be interesting to see. I think they're probably done for the time being. But, you know, like you said, we I thought they were done for the time being when they signed Hayward. So I don't, I don't want to uh, speak to anything too certainly here. Tom Westerholm, MassLive.com, Celtics writer. Thanks so much for the insight and the updates. And uh, best of luck here as we get a little bit closer to the preseason for the Celtics. Thanks, man. We're going to need it. That's Tom Westerholm of MassLive.com. Yeah, you know, listen, I don't know what this trade does. I still think personally that it makes the Celtics the team to beat. In the East, I, I think the now uh, over the Cavaliers, especially with Isaiah Thomas's injury. I mean, depending on how healthy he is, how long he can play, who knows? Um, all I know is that I thought this whole week and the Cavaliers dragging this thing out makes the Cavaliers look really, really bad uh, in the whole situation. We'll see what happens. I mean, there are rumors that the Celtics are still have their eyes fully focused on Anthony Davis if he becomes available. And if the Celtics can get Anthony Davis and keep, for the most part, those guys that are, are in that potential starting five, that's an impressive team. I mean, you, let's just say, for example, they do get Anthony Davis. That's a legitimate five. You've got Al Horford, one of the best pick-and-roll big men and best passing big men in the game. Um at the four, you can have Gordon Hayward at the three, uh, Jalen Brown at the two, Kyrie Irving, your point guard with Jason Tatum coming off the bench. That's a pretty impressive team right there. Just those six guys. Um, I mean, it's tough to win an NBA championship with just six guys, but hey, the Cavaliers have gotten close a couple of years. So who knows? We'll uh, we'll wait and see exactly all what happens there. But that's the biggest story in the NBA. And it's going to continue to be until if Carmelo Anthony gets traded. But Kyrie got his wish. He's now the man. Celtics got a, a very talented point guard, and, and the Cavaliers got some pieces that can either help them keep LeBron or help them rebuild after LeBron leaves. So we'll uh, we'll see what happens. But could going to be a fun NBA season, that's for sure. You're on Press Row. I'm Christian Heimel. Thank you guys so much for being a part of the show. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Share us with your friends on iTunes. You can always follow me. Ask me any questions you guys have on Twitter, at Chris Heimel. Uh, want to quickly touch on the NFL and college football. College football season does start today. Uh, you've got a couple of big uh, college football games starting up here in just a little bit. Um, tonight, obviously, you've got second-ranked Oklahoma, uh, Ohio State excuse me, against Indiana. That's coming out tonight. Uh, you've got some other big games this weekend. I'm so pumped for Alabama FSU. Should be a huge one to watch, and that's a really exciting game on opening weekend. Uh, going to be a lot of fun, but college football is back. I'm so pumped for it. Um, one of my favorite times of year is, is college football. Nothing better than a Saturday where you can just watch football all day long. Uh, kind of exciting there. And again, more suspensions coming out of Florida ahead of this Michigan um, game coming up on Saturday. So I think Florida's in a, in a lot of trouble with some of the issues that they have had uh, with their suspensions. And speaking of suspensions, a couple of them, in the NFL, Vontez Burfecht, you saw the, the blind side, in my opinion, cheap shot of a defenseless receiver. The ball's not even being thrown his way. Burfecht has no reason to go and hit, hit him, but 
He was originally suspended five games. That's been cut down to three now. And a lot of reports saying that Ezekiel Elliott is going to get his six-game suspension reduced, um, which you know we, we kind of expected. Uh, we, when we spoke with Mike Leslie of WFAA in Dallas a couple weeks ago, he kind of expected it to be dropped to four games, most likely. So, and, and I don't think the Cowboys are going to be hurt that much. Obviously, opening weekend kind of hurts them if they don't have uh, Ezekiel Elliott there. But the Giants could not have Odell Beckham Jr. with an injury. So, who knows? Biggest news out of that is, is not only, you know, could you get Ezekiel Elliott back sooner, but, you know, who, what does that do for him from a public perception? I think a lot of people believe that he is innocent. Um, and this is a big witch hunt by the NFL, but who knows? We, we've talked about that at nauseum, and I, I think Vontez Burfick's suspension getting dropped from five to three is an even greater indication that Zeke's suspension will go down uh, as well, most likely, I think, four games, which is probably what it should be anyway, no matter what. Just the idea that you did something um, you know, from a domestic abuse standpoint deserves some sort of punishment, whatever it may be. Um, but you know the other big big news in the NFL is, has been the injuries to guys like Julian Edelman, um, Odell Beckham Jr., a couple of others, and this is going to only continue the talks that potentially should there be a shortened preseason. I think there should be. I mean, I don't know. I don't watch the preseason at all. I really don't. I'm not light. I'm not lying. I'm not trying to, you know, be that guy who says, oh no, I don't. But then I turn on a couple of you know games or whatever. I don't. I don't watch preseason football because I don't want to sit there and watch the starters play for, for one series. I don't, you know, the preseason literally only matters for two types of players, players trying to make a team and guys who were injured last year, trying to get back. It means nothing for anybody else. These are professional players. If you can't create the same atmosphere of a preseason game in a controlled scrimmage, then what are you doing? That that's all preseason games are is a controlled scrimmage. It's for the folks on TV. It's for the stadiums to be able to try to sell tickets and make some money cut the preseason down to maybe just two games, maybe a controlled scrimmage in there as well. Do you have to, you don't have to add another NFL game. You don't have to make it 18 weeks. You can keep it at 17 weeks, 16 games, and maybe you throw in an extra bye week before the playoffs to rest guys. Maybe just move everything up a week. What's wrong with that? I I don't, I don't see an issue with that, but, um, you look at all the injuries, and then you look at some of the signings that have happened. Joe Hayden, the all-pro corner from the Browns, getting cut on Wednesday and then signed that same day with the Steelers. Uh, that makes Pittsburgh a very dangerous team defensively. I like them a lot, especially in that AFC North. It's it's pretty obvious. I think they win that division. Uh, and then the big one, you know, Matthew Stafford signing for a boatload of money, 27 mil a year for five years, the highest in, in, in the NFL. Is he worth it? You can argue he's most certainly not, but he's got a big arm. He doesn't have a great team around him. Um, the NFC North is, is the Packers division to lose. But I think what that does is the Lions are sending a message to their team, their fan base, that Stafford is going to be our franchise quarterback, something that they have struggled with to have. And now they just got to find a way to put the pieces around him and see what they can do. But, you know, say what you will. Uh, whether he earned it or not in your mind, I, I think that Matthew Stafford is clearly that guy now for for the, the Detroit Lions, and, and he sets the benchmark for how other quarterbacks are going to get paid. You imagine if, if guys like Tom Brady weren't such team players uh, and weren't willing to take salary cuts so they could put better uh, people around them, 
I imagine how much Brady would be getting paid if he didn't want the best talent around him. That's that's insane to me to think of, but it's just how it all is. It's how it works out. So you're on Press Row. I'm Christian Heimel. Again, subscribe, rate, review, share us with your friends. Tell everybody about us. We're happy to be a part of you guys wherever you're listening, however you're listening. Um, want to transition now into the world of Major League Baseball because this past weekend was kind of interesting. You know, they had the Players Weekend uh, where you had all the nicknames on the back. You had custom shoes. It was a really fun weekend for Major League Baseball and something that I think was really great because it's trying to now capture the younger audience. Um, it coincided with the end of the Little League World Series when two weeks ago they had that Little League Classic, which was great. Um, I, I love Players Weekend. The idea of it was pretty neat. The jerseys I loved. I know a lot of people didn't, but I loved those jerseys. They were very similar to the Little League World Series type. It was just a fun weekend overall. One of the guys who follows baseball year in and year out, Christopher Cotillo, MLB writer of SB Nation, as well as MLB Daily Dish. He joins us now here on Press Row. And what were your thoughts, Christopher, on the uh, initial uh, players weekend here for Major League Baseball? Yeah, I thought it was a really unique idea. You know, I think it's Major League Baseball is trying for the first time in a long time to really market itself as a fun league. We've seen that uh, more and more this year than ever being at the All-Star Game. I think without the home field advantage being on the line, you saw that selfie with Nelson Cruz and some other more playful stuff. And then Players Weekend, I think, was really kind of aimed at the younger generation. I know there's a lot of crotchety people out there who it's, it's, it's uh, kind of like that, you know, oh, the Yankees aren't in pinstripes. This is, you know, sacrilegious stuff like that. But trying to bring in a new uh, group, a new audience, I thought the Little League Classic and the Go did the same thing. Uh, as a 21-year-old, I see that, you know, my friends or my generation – can't wait for NFL Sundays to start. I'm the same way because I'm a Patriots fan. And when you go, when we're go six, so I completely understand that. But for other people, I think, you know, it's it's tough to really get invested in a long six-month baseball season outside of, you know, opening day, the All-Star game, and uh, especially the playoffs. So having you know, some of these big events in August, some of these interesting things to tune into um, were really cool. I think, you know, when you're looking at custom design shoes, jerseys, nicknames, all that kind of stuff. It's a great way to engage the younger fan. I'm sure they did a great job with that. During the preseason in March and April, we saw a lot of reports that baseball had no face. There wasn't that one marquee player that you could market throughout the country. How much do you think that went into Major League Baseball's decision to have something like a player's weekend? Yeah, I think it probably did. You know, they're they're a league that has never been as superstar-based as the NBA or the NFL. We've seen that uh, over the last few years, and and that has to do with popularity. You know, the, the NBA offseason in a lot of ways overshadowed a good part of the MLB actual regular season with all the moves that were made there, um, whether it be Kyrie or, or whatever, uh, going throughout the whole offseason, Paul George and, and Butler, all those guys moving. You have now baseball trying to step in and say, all right, how can we make our guys, our really young guys, marketable to these younger fans? Now, baseball – when, when people say there's no face of baseball, I did a big project on this at the All-Star Game. They say there's no face of baseball. They're discounting the fact that there are 10, 20 young stars who are out there who are really you know, in the mix for that, whether it be Harper or Trout, like you'd think, or Stanton now really coming into play, or Chris Bryant and Rizzo and Lindor and Mookie Betts and guys like this. There is just this wave of younger guys now that Jeter and Chipper Jones and obviously uh, – David Ortiz are out of the game. It's all about these younger guys trying to find ways for them to really show their personalities in a game that's tough to do so. It's, I think, great. He's Christopher Cotillo, MLB writer for SB Nation as well as MLB Daily Dish. 
You brought up Giancarlo Stanton. I mean, he's been like this throughout his entire career, a big power hitter. Obviously, certain things have prevented him from having a season like this. But how special has 2017 been for the Miami Slugger? Well, I think a lot of his career and his career arc to this point has just been about health. You know, he hasn't been as healthy in his career as a lot of guys the last couple of years, you know, playing in 119 games last year and missing over half the season the year before. You're seeing just health playing a huge role. Last year, a big down season for him. Uh, you know, obviously 27 home runs is solid, but not you know, what you expect. And this year, this second half explosion, I think it comes at an extremely interesting time because the the Marlins, now led by Derek Jeter, once the sale is finalized, they're going to have to go through this crazy process of deciding, is Giancarlo Stanton going to be the face of our franchise? Obviously, they have him locked up through like 2080 or whatever it is on that long contract that's 300 million left to pay. And, um, but if they want to do a franchise reset, his value is going to obviously be sky high. Every team in the league is going to be interesting and adding interested in adding him. So it's a very tough decision. Will they try to make a trade or will they keep him? Uh, I think, you know, obviously having his value at an all time high puts them in an even tougher position than we would have thought. Uh, it's really been cool to see his rise to prominence at 50 home runs already going to really make a run at, somewhere in the 60s, which is something we haven't seen in a long time. And um, just, again, one of those young faces of baseball that is really impressive to a lot of people. He's one of those guys that no matter what his home run total is this year, Giancarlo Stanton will be mentioned among some of the best home run single seasons in Major League Baseball history. You're not much younger than I am, and I understand where folks get a little upset and say 62 would be the real home run record. Where will Giancarlo's season rank, no matter what his final home run numbers are, given uh, the way things are talked about? Yeah, I totally understand, you know, that argument and, and a post steroid error, I think era, I think it's pretty impressive to get to fifty and with the month left in the season be at fifty. I think sixty is definitely in the realm of possibility. How for him seventy might be with the way he's been swaying the bat and uh, I, I think it's kind of lost in this that the Marlins have actually been able to rise up a little bit under him. You look back to you know, we're coming up on a year on, on Jose Fernandez's tragic death and the last year's been a lot about not, not just that tragedy, but you know, the sale of the team and dysfunction and potentially another fire sale, which didn't happen. All of a sudden, they're two games over 500. You know, the wild card all year in the National League, the story has been those two teams out west with Arizona and Colorado. But you're looking at a team in Miami that's suddenly just four and a half games back, and we've seen teams come back from more than that in September before. And I think, you know, if he continues this pace and Miami's able to you know, make some moves, I think they're a team that's better set up for the future than a lot of people think. Christian Yelich, Marcelo Zuna, obviously Stanton. There are some issues, but we get rid of the dysfunction at the top there. And I think, you know, there's an actual um, chance for this team to really contend in the next couple of years. And we'll just see at this point if Stanton is going to be a part of that. It'll be fun to see where he ends up uh, at the end of this season. But we talk about young faces in Major League Baseball. There's another one making an impressive debut in Philadelphia, Reese Hoskins. What about this debut has been so stellar for this young kid? I think we're seeing these hot starts you know, more frequently than ever right now. Someone comes up from AAA, even not even the most heralded prospects come out and go crazy. Major league pitchers aren't used to facing them. They don't know the strengths and weaknesses. And we see the hitters really have the advantage right when they come up. And we saw obviously judge at the beginning of this year and Gary Sanchez last year. And some guys who've come up, Eric James, another one at the beginning of this year. And for Hoskins, I think, you know, it's good to see something positive for the Phillies because they're at the point in their rebuild where they should be, really starting to turn the corner and they've just regressed. You know, they've started, they've made all those big trades, trading away. Obviously, Hamill's the big one, but Utley and obviously Rollins and Ruiz and all that core 
from 2008 and beyond. And, you know, they're kind of stuck in a situation that's similar to almost what the Giants or the Cardinals are now where, you know, the Giants especially, where you win a World Series, you try to lock up those guys long-term, they age a little bit late, maybe quicker than you anticipate, and then you're faced with so you have to trade them for low-level prospects, and those guys take some time to develop. Hoskins is obviously a guy I wasn't traded for, but drafted uh, a few years ago, and he's really one of the first guys that's really come up that you think, okay, this guy could actually be part of the future core in Philadelphia. What he's done in just a few weeks has been really impressive and uh, looks good for the long term along with these other guys they have in the system. Uh, you know, obviously Aaron Nola is impressed at the major league level. We've seen some up and down things from Vincent Velasquez, but there's a lot of prospects that have a shot there. I think the Phillies are a legitimate, a legitimate threat to sign some of these big free agents in the next couple of years. Whether that be someone like Manny Machado, uh, you know, one of these guys this offseason, Arietta, someone like that. Um, the, there's a lot of there's a lot of talent. They're about to turn the corner, you know, having a, top picks in the last few years, and Hoskins being successful in the major leagues to start that off is, is a good good starting point for a delayed process for a team that is you know so far under 500. Obviously, everybody understands the idea of bringing up one of your better prospects late in the year to get him some major league experience before that first full season, uh, much like Gary Sanchez last year. But how does a kid like Hoskins avoid or what's the biggest fear in him having a Gary Sanchez like moment where he's not as talked about in his first full season in the major leagues as he was when he first made his debut? Well, I think it just comes down to those pitchers gaining familiarity. You know, it's like I said, it's, it's tough to. Um, it's tough to repeat you know, what you do the first time you ever face pitchers. It's how it's it's kind of like how pitchers going a third time through a lineup struggle sometimes. It's just part of that game. And I think next year when he's in the majors full time, uh, the grind gets gets longer. The adrenaline's not there as much, and there's going to be a, gr- a regression to the mean. I mean, there's you know no one expected this out of him. And through 20 games, he's been on fire. We've seen none of these guys ever are sustainable. So there's a letdown piece there. I think it's always interesting in baseball, and I've said this before on other shows, you know, if you come out in the first half and you're the best player in the league and, and stuff, and then you come out and struggle in the second half, your season's looked at at the end as, oh, that was disappointing. We're going to look at Judge in the second half and say, yeah, well, I'll tell two seasons, but he ended up being a disappointment. If you come out in the first half and you're terrible and you do really well in the second half and you're celebrated as, wow, look at him coming on late. It's it's a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately kind of league, and and Hoskins is going to eventually probably fall victim to that. He's not going to be able to hit, you know, 11 home runs or 18 games or whatever it's been uh, for his entire career. If he does, you know, I'll be shocked. And we've seen that Sanchez, Payne, Judge, um, some of these guys over the last couple of years, it's just not possible to sustain that pace. But that doesn't mean he can't be a successful and really productive player for the Phillies for years going forward. He's Christopher Cotillo of SB Nation and MLB Daily Dish. Uh, this year feels to me like the year of the umpire. We've talked about the umpiring crew so much more this season, I feel like, than we ever have before, um, especially you look at that protest a couple of weeks ago, and now talks are starting to really pick up about an electronic strike zone. Are we really heading that direction here in Major League Baseball? I think it's something that's going to be tried out, you know, at least in the minors or um, – something along those lines in the future. I think, you know, we, we're always kind of hesitant to talk about change, you know, especially in a game that is so much rich tradition. But at the same time, we were having this talk about instant replay a few years ago, so having this talk about pitch clocks even more recently. Those things have all become part of the games in the pros at least some level. Changes to extra innings have been talked about. Progress is always, and change is always something that's scary, especially for, you know, like that older audience. And I completely understand that. But, 
if you're, you know, a 60-year-old baseball fan, you're a 60-year-old Red Sox fan, and a missed strike call costs you a chance to get to the World Series, and the LCS against the Yankees, you might have wished that there was uh, an electronic strike zone. You're not going to say, oh, well, it cost, it cost us a chance at the World Series, but it's the human element, so that's okay. I think that, that argument um, kind of gets old after a while. I think it's where we're headed. Uh, it's it's it, it's tough. It really is. I think the protest is one of the stupidest things I've seen in a long time. I think it was completely, you know, in a time where in our country we're looking at so many issues that are so much bigger uh, with politics and racism and all that stuff and and the umpires decide, oh, we're, we're, the, we're the victims here. We need to wear white armbands because someone talked badly about us. I think is just incredibly um, useless and, and unproductive and insensitive almost because, you know, they're, they're guys that are getting paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to watch a game. And, and if they don't do the best they do, then, yeah, they're going to get criticized by guys who you know, have their, their futures and their team's futures impacted by it. But I think it was just a really – stupid move by the umpires to do that um and it's, it's tough that you see the umpires unless in the headlines you, you're right they happen more than ever whether it be even on Hernandez suing the league for discrimination and stuff like that if you know an umpire's name is usually like they say not a great thing and it's been tough to see that over and over and i think this year might push the electronic strike something just a little bit farther down the line christopher cotillo of sb nation and mlb daily dish i appreciate the time here today and enjoy the rest of the baseball season yep thank you Christopher Cotillo of SB Nation joining us here on Press Row. And, you know, I, I didn't want to ask him about, you know, the, the Houston Astros, Texas Rangers thing, because listen, I mean, in, in, in as he even said it in, in today's world, there's so much bigger things that we need to be focused on and, and helping people out in Houston is one of the big things. Should the Rangers have agreed to flop series uh, with them? Absolutely. From a decency standpoint, they should have, but at the same time, I understand where the Rangers are coming. They would have had a very, very tough schedule uh, going into the end of the year. I mean, look at where they are in the standings. As we look at things today, the Texas Rangers in the American League, um, in the American League West, they're they're out of it. They're you know 13 games behind the Rangers. It's a divisional thing. I understand that. But in the wild card, look at where the Rangers are. The Rangers are right there, three games out of a wild card spot, and they're they're going to give up three home games late in September when they're going to be on the road for nearly three weeks. That's that's a tough beat for them. I don't a hundred percent disagree with them not wanting to give up and swap those series because they would have been on the road from September fifteenth on the West Coast with the Angels, the Mariners, the Athletics. And then to go technically on the road for the Astros. I mean, that's a two-week road trip. And I guess I know you're not going that far. It's a four-hour drive from Dallas to Houston. I've made that drive before. So it's not that big of a deal. But at the same time, it kind of is. Because in Major League Baseball, that's how they do it. But as Chris Cotillo said, there are bigger things that need to be worried about in this world. And, and the Rangers absolutely, from a decency standpoint, should have flopped the series. They should have. Or what they should be doing is finding ways to to raise money and donate for them. You know, because what J.J. Watt's doing, nearly $10 million raised, all the people who are down there in line volunteering in Houston, it's tremendous. I, I love the support. I love to see that. I lived in New York when Superstorm Sandy hit. It was tremendous to see the amount of people coming all over to New Jersey and New York to help rebuild there. Um, I lived in D.C. when 9-11 hit, um, you know, and, and to see people 
help others. It's tremendous. It's what we do, but it's, it's, it makes everything else just kind of go into perspective. And I really do feel like the Rangers should have done it from a common decency standpoint. And who knows, maybe what they do is when the, when the Astros go to Dallas uh, at the end of September, maybe they do something to help the folks there. Who knows? All I know is that, you know, I, there's a quote that I used to have above my desk. that said, um, it's not live and let live, but live and help live. And I think so many people need to do that. And we lose sight of that. And what's going on in Houston, if you guys can do anything to help, do it. Even even if it's as simple as sending a prayer or putting out on social media a link of where people can go help. If you don't have the money to donate or you don't have the time to go down and volunteer, which very few of us do, but even just letting people know how they can help is a help. And and that's that's all that can really matter. So I certainly hope you guys do that. I certainly hope that you folks find a, a way to, to give back. And it may not be to Houston. It can be for a cause that you have, whatever it is, cancer research, uh, Alzheimer's, um, cerebral palsy, multiple sclerosis, anything, uh, you know, Lou Gehrig's disease, whatever it is. If you find something that you're passionate about and you can give to it, do that because that's the only way that we survive as a human race is when we remain human. I've said it before with regards to Colin Kaepernick. This is on a much more global way, women's rights, you know, whatever it is. All that stuff, if you have a cause, support it. Do it. That's the most important thing possible. The most important aspect of a human being is being human. I hope you guys take that into account when you look here and you see some of the images coming out of Southeast Texas. I want to thank my guests here today, John Morgan of MMA Junkie Recap and the Mayweather-McGregor fight. Of course, Christopher Cotillo of SB Nation and MLB Daily Dish talking Major League Baseball. And then a real fun conversation with Tom Westerholm of MassLive.com recapping what finally has finished up that's Kyrie Irving uh, trade with the Celtics and the Cavaliers it's been a fun show hope you guys enjoyed it hope you guys will tune in next week again don't forget to subscribe rate review share us with your friends you can find me on Twitter at Chris Heimel until next week I'll see you on Press Row